One of the things that is sometimes a bit of a challenge when you're reading the Bible is what appears to be contradictions that God makes about himself. For example, in the whole Christmas scene, when the angels appear, they sing about peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But then when you listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, about verse 34, he says that he's not come to bring peace, but a sword. So which is it? Or somehow is it both? Let's talk about the sword first. What do swords do? Swords cut. Swords divide. And when Jesus came to this earth, he created a division. A division in families and friendships and communities. A division that carries on to this very day. When Jesus came to the world, people became separated or divided between believers and unbelievers. And so you know people who are probably in both categories. Some of them may be your family, your friends, your coworkers. If I were to ask you on which side do you stand, what would be your response? Nicodemus was trying to figure out where he stood with Jesus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the spiritual supreme court of Israel. They'd be given a little bit of authority under the Romans. Nicodemus was also a scholar. He studied God. He studied the law. He studied the prophets. So he's a man of prestige, a man of great influence. And the words and the claims of Jesus unsettled him. So he went to ask Jesus a question in John chapter 3. And he went under the cover of darkness because he probably did not want his peers to see him and to assume that he too was now a follower of Jesus because he just wasn't sure yet. I want you to follow a story with me, so why don't you turn open to John 3, or if you use a different type of Bible, electronic, turn on. I welcome all of those joining us online, in particular our global partners who are always thankful can join us on a weekend. John <clears throat> chapter 3. He comes to Jesus, as I said, on the cover of darkness, and it says in verse 2 that he pays Jesus a wonderful compliment. He says to him, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. This is a nice compliment. But he also has a concern. His concern has something to do with the claims that Jesus makes about himself, son of God. And how Jesus presents himself as the final authority on God's will. And the same thing is true today. And one of the reasons why there's this division amongst people is that some people just struggle with Jesus 
and his claim of divinity and his claim of authority over all things truth. Not just the words he spoke, but the words from Genesis to Revelation that God inspires his prophets and apostles and others to write, which we adhere by. It's unsettling. Now, when Nicodemus came to Jesus, Jesus could see into Nicodemus' heart. And so Jesus doesn't mince words. He goes straight to the point. He kind of peels everything back. He exposes the, the issue that is really on the table for Nicodemus and those like him. Jesus looked at him in verse 3 and said, Nicodemus, I want to tell you the truth. That is, in this world of lies, you need to know that unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's the kind of thing that Jesus would say that caused people to get on edge. It would just be nice if he could be like a... a really good prophet, a really good spiritual kind of leader. But be so definitive to think that he has the authority to determine who is in and who is out. Nicodemus and his colleagues thought they were the ones to determine that. They thought they were the keepers of the gate into the kingdom of God. Was Jesus insinuating that they were on the outside looking in, that they weren't in, they were out? Is that what's going on here? Nicodemus says to the Lord, he said, well, I don't really understand this born-again thing. I'm, I'm an old man. How am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb and be born again? Is that what you mean? And then Jesus responded to him. What it says in verse 5, New Living Translation, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. So what Jesus says is, first you have to be born physically, that's the reference to the water. But then you have to be born spiritually. And what Jesus presents to him is a human impossibility, and that's what Nicodemus is grappling with. I don't know how to be born again. It's impossible to be born again. And that was Jesus' point. It is impossible. You can't, on your own, be spiritually born again. It's something that, that the Holy Spirit must apply to your life based on what Jesus does for each one of us. And then Jesus takes him to, the, the verse is probably better known in the Bible than any other verse in terms of people having heard it, and that's John 3.16. It says here in the New Living Translation, in John 3.16, Jesus said to Nicodemus, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, Nicodemus, you have to believe on me. You have to believe that I've been sent from God 
not just to do miracles, but the greatest miracle. I've been sent by God to save the world, and I'm going to give my life to do that. I've not come to condemn and judge this world, but to save this world. Now, how is it that people then and people now have such trouble with that? Why is it that people have such animosity towards Jesus and towards his word and towards his followers? I understand that there are Christians in the past and the present who sometimes say and represent God in a, in a very wrong way and, and they don't help the cause, so to speak, much. But generally speaking, why is there this animosity, even in our own country, a growing animosity towards the things of God? Is it, because, is it because there's no evidence for God? There's no evidence for Christ? There's no evidence in the scriptures that speak to truth? Is this really a book of legend and myth and fallacy? Is it fiction? Is that why? And, and that's why people are so against it, because it's being portrayed as truth and it's ruining lives and not helping lives? I think anybody who honestly, intellectually approaches history and approaches the scriptures and does all the background check and investigation has to agree that there's plenty of evidence for the reality of somebody named Jesus and lots of evidence for his claims. And while one can choose to disagree, let's be honest and not say, well, it's because it's, there's no evidence for it. Well, then, is it because of a character defect in Jesus that we don't trust him, that we don't want to commit to him? Well, look at the life of Jesus. Did he live lavishly? Did he tweet out mean things about his enemies? Was he sarcastic? Was he obnoxious? Was he proud? Did he abuse children? Did he put down women? Is he angry? Is he political? Was he untrustworthy? Was he a drunkard? Uh, if you examine the evidence, there's no, there's no evidence whatsoever that Jesus had any kind of character defect. His character was impeccable. He was born into poverty. He lived humbly. He lived compassionately. He showed care. He elevated those who were marginalized. He elevated women in the culture. He paid special attention to the children. And then he gave his whole life away out of love for us so we could be reconciled to his father. So why the animosity with someone so perfect as Jesus? Someone who in so many places and points we would agree with. Why the animosity? Why antagonism toward him, toward his word, and toward his followers. He answers the question for us. I want to begin reading contextually in verse 18. He says to Nicodemus, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. He's referring to himself in third person. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Now, what he's saying is, look, if a person refuses to believe in me and, and pursue some other belief, that becomes their judgment. 
See, go ahead and do life without me. Go ahead and do life without my truth and see where it leads. Not just you, but your family and societies. In essence, what he's saying. Verse 19, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins would be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. The, the, the answer to the question, why unbelief, why this antagonism, why this animosity is summed up in one phrase that is made here. Jesus says, people love the darkness. People love the darkness. You and I had a love affair with the darkness before we became believers. And listen carefully, we have to guard ourselves because still every once in a while we glance toward the darkness and we feel pulled into it. Say, well, what is darkness here? Darkness represents sin and evil. We love sin and evil. You say, well, what does love mean? The Greek word that Jesus uses here for love means, first of all, to be fond of something. It means to be content with something. It means to dearly love something. So Jesus is saying the, the cause for unbelief is a contentment, a, a, a dear love for a fondness of sin and evil. Now, when I first read that or hear that, I go, wait a minute. I don't dearly love sin and evil, and I don't, I'm not fond of evil. But that, that all depends on how you think about sin and evil. There's a lot that is sinful and evil that we're actually quite fond of. Let, let me give you a, an illustration. Um, I've preached you know, many messages here over the last five years, and every once in a while I, I try to get pretty vulnerable with you, and I've let you know that I have a fondness for sweets. If it's got sugar, I really like it. Anybody else feel my pain? Wonderful. I don't feel so alone. I really like sugar. I, I admit to really liking junk food. How many say, yep, I'm into junk food. I could have it for breakfast. I do sometimes. I could have it for uh, my second breakfast. I could have it for my first, second, and third lunch and for dinner and a snack before I go to bed. I have no problem with it. And my, my favorite delivery system for sugar is ice cream. Is ice cream. I love ice cream. I find contentment and joy in ice cream. I'm fond of ice cream. So Marcia was recently gone uh, visiting her wonderful parents out in California, and I needed comforting. <laughs> so I went to the freezer and I opened it up, and there was cookie dough waiting to comfort me. I pulled out a half gallon of cookie dough ice cream, and it was brand new, and I snipped the plastic off, and I pulled the top off of it, and I grabbed my spoon, and I got excited. I felt joy and I felt warm inside. <laughs> Even though it's cold, I felt warm inside. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but 
Ice cream is, is meant to be eaten out of the carton, not put into a dish. <laughs> There's a chemical change that happens when it goes into the dish. And since the guardian was not there, I began to eat out of the carton. Now, I'll have to pay a price for this confession later. But one of Marcia's things is, honey, if you eat the ice, there's several things she's pointed out to me. But she says, you know, one of the issues is if you eat it out of the carton, if we have guests come over, we can't serve them the ice cream from that carton. And that's my point exactly. More for me. I actually was enjoying it so much that before I realized that I had eaten half of the ice cream. And then a voice inside said, stop. And I didn't want to, but I knew I needed to. And I did, and I put it back. And once again, I was lonely. <laughs> I, told, I told that story in the last service, and somebody delivered this to me afterwards. So I appreciate the fact that little kids pay attention. I don't know if you can see it or not. You probably can't. It says, Pastor Dale... Uh, Pastor Dale loves ice cream. Ella did that for me. Isn't that cute? I love that. That's going on in the fridge next to the ice cream. All right? <laughs> Isn't it wonderful the truth that's being learned by our children in church? Yeah. <laughs> love ice cream. David is a man after God's own heart. And one day, he let his guard down, and he looked out his balcony and saw a naked woman, Bathsheba. And he loved the darkness. And he created huge consequences for him and his family. Peter, who said that he would die with Jesus, had the opportunity to stand with Jesus and die with Jesus, but he would love his own life more than the life of Christ. And he felt contented to lie, to deny Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, said, when Jesus says that we, that people love the darkness, he says that's a positive thing. It's a positive toward a negative direction. And all of us have had that positive feeling in us towards something that is negative, that is dark. And so oftentimes we try to straddle the shadowlands, not go all the way into darkness, but flirt a little bit with what we think is going to fulfill our lives. It might be in the area of sexuality. It might be in the area of greed or gossip. It might be in the area of, uh, of dishonesty. I mean, the list goes on of the things that we can find ourselves attracted to. I mean, it's a real conundrum when you think about it that, that God prohibits the things that we love. He says no to some of the things that we would love to enjoy. What do you do with that? How do you deal with that? Whether you're a student or an adult, how do you deal with that? Well, the world has some ways to deal with it. One way to deal with it is to just consider God and the scriptures irrelevant. Irrelevant. That's a secularist point of view. All of this stuff is irrelevant. And we should stop talking really about sin and evil. Now, I really want your parents, grandparents to pay attention because your children and grandchildren are inundated by this. They're inundated by it from every direction as our culture becomes increasingly secular. 
You are as well, but you need to guard them because the message they're being told is we shouldn't really be talking about sin and evil. The problem with our culture is people aren't good enough yet. So to use some really bad English, how do we get people good? How do we get people to be better? How do we help them improve? Well, the culture comes along and says the answer is knowledge. Knowledge is our salvation. So we need more knowledge, more education. We need more money and distribution of wealth. We need more government and policies and regulations. We need more tolerance. And therefore, that which is intolerant, particularly God and the Bible, needs to really be set aside if we could have our way. And we need the freedom to express ourselves as we feel like expressing ourselves. The secularist point of view has been around for a really, really long time. And I still don't see things getting a whole lot better. That's because, in essence, if you buy into a secular humanistic point of view, you have to buy into the fact that we all got here by evolution. And the premise of evolution is survival of the fittest. And even secular philosophers will tell you that's a dangerous way to think. Therefore, we have to fabricate a lie for people to follow and believe in. Or we have implosion and absolute anarchy. What a strange world we live in, huh? question is, well, what lies should we make up? Where should we draw the lines? Now, some people are very uncomfortable with that because they believe there's someone, something, some being out there, and there are certain things that they like about what the Scriptures have to say and who Jesus is. So their idea is, let's edit Jesus and sanitize the Scriptures. And the mindset is, you know, the, the Bible has some wonderful things in it, but the Bible was corrupted by human beings with very narrow views on life and lifestyle and ideology and worldview. So we need to go back to Genesis all the way through Revelation, pull out that junk, get back to who Jesus really was and what the Scriptures do truly advocate. Well, the question becomes, who's going to do the editing? Right? Who's going to make the edits? And it's going to come down to what do I feel like prohibiting versus what do you feel like prohibiting? Who's going to make those edits? And what if you edit out something that I believe in? I'm just supposed to accept that. You're now God, I'm not. And what if I edit out something? You see where that goes? It just does not go in a good place. Does not go in a good place. Now, why is it we're, we're all about that? It's because ultimately what drives our life, we mentioned it last weekend, is not knowledge. What drives our life is our yearnings and our desires. That's why, like I said last weekend, there are oftentimes when you and I will say and do things and we'll go, why did I say and do that? I know better. It's because of what Jesus says. There is, there is this love. There is this affection in our lives, this desire in our lives, that which is darkness. And that's why Jesus came. He came to set us free from that darkness. And the only way to set us free from darkness is to show us light. And the light is himself, and the light is his truth. And once you've seen the light, you're able to discern what the darkness is. 
And the Lord says, don't keep pursuing that darkness, no matter how good it feels, no matter how philosophically right it feels to you. The warning is, don't go down that road. And I'm just here to say, and I know it's not popular today, but I'm just here to say the evidence of that is all around us. Follow the presuppositions of a secular philosophical world, and, and you see where we're going with it. Many years ago, a long time ago, I think we just had our first child. We took a, a vacation. We were living in Ohio. We went to Kentucky to visit the uh, Mammoth Cave. Anybody been there? No? You should go sometime, but don't take me with you. All right? I, I'm, anybody claustrophobic besides me? Don't like those tight spaces. So we decided to go visit Mammoth Cave. We went down, 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 down into the darkness. And I didn't like that. It just didn't feel good to me. Thoughts start going through my mind. What if there's an earthquake, you know, or what if something happens? And then the park ranger did something I wish she hadn't done. She shut all the lights off. I'm telling you, darkness like I can't even describe. You could have your, your, you could have your hand in front of your face. Even in a dark room, you can kind of sense it's there. It's like you, you can't sense anything. It's so dark. And then she starts telling stories about how people have been lost in the caves and the darkness. They had to bang rocks together not to lose their minds. And I'm like, I need some rocks to bang right now. <laughs> Finally, the lights came on. I was so relieved and I wanted out. I wanted out. The light gave me a perspective on the darkness. If all I'd ever known my whole life was darkness, I wouldn't know. It's like asking a fish to explain water. Can't, it's all it's ever known. God loves us so much that he makes the truth known to us. He gives us the light so we can step away from this paralyzing darkness. In John chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus is talking about all of this, what it means to trust in him, he uses an illustration from Numbers chapter 21. He says, do you remember Moses, Nicodemus? Do you remember how he was leading the people, and the people began to rebel and complain toward him and toward God. And they just kept going on and on and on. And God finally sent poisonous snakes that bit the people. They suffered. Many died until finally they repented. And they said, we're wrong. We're sorry. Help us. And God said, make a replica of one of those snakes, put it up on a pole, and everyone who looks on it will be healed. Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, that's what you have to do with me. And Jesus was put up on a pole called the cross. And everybody who looks on him with eyes of faith experiences the removal of the sting of sin and evil that leads to death. It has eternal life. Now, my question is, do you believe this or not? See, that's the peace. That's the peace on earth. That's the goodwill toward men. The good news that God loves us. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you today. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for sending us light 
in the midst of this dark world, oh God. We live, Father, in such a confusing world today. We live, Lord, in a world of alternative so-called truths that are just forms of darkness. Lord, I pray, help us to embrace Jesus as the light. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, those who follow me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light that leads to life. Father, as we come to celebrate Holy Communion, it's our reminder of this light that has liberated us, for which we are thankful. We're undeserving, Lord. And if any of us, Lord, have been dabbling in the darkness, we, we repent right now. We stop. We ask your forgiveness. We thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we want to move back into the spotlight of your grace and truth and love.